The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, thank you for your kindness. We say that often, I pray that often, I think that often. You are deeply, widely, amazingly kind, generous to us, giving. Thank you for that. You cause us to see something of that in your nature today and want that for ourselves. And will you then, through this passage and and through what your spirit does among us here this morning, will you move us to be a people who, who give generously, who are kind, merciful? You need to move us that way, Lord. We are not that naturally. So please do a work here. Make this passage clear and use it to move us. Make us like Jesus, please. Clear away all distractions here this morning from, from our minds, from, from the atmosphere around us, and just help us to hear you, to focus on what your word says, make it clear, build your church then, Lord, please, and honor your name. That's what we ask you to do this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. We love you and we trust you. Amen. We Americans have always loved our rights. Ever since the Founding Fathers penned the Bill of Rights, we have made it our priority to know exactly what we are entitled to as citizens of this country, to know our rights, to be sure to stand on them, and to never let them be infringed upon. And this is all the more the case today, in a slightly different way, perhaps. We have, we have that still too, but we have a slightly different thing going on. Our current culture is more concerned than ever with what I might call soft interpersonal rights. Not just the things written down on paper in the Bill of Rights, but, but soft interpersonal things, such as, an example here, the right to wear any kind of clothing I want anywhere at all. And no one can say anything about it, no one can look at me sideways, no one can shame me with how I look. I deserve to be able to do and be whatever I please. That kind of thing. Now, this is not about to become any kind of a statement about what is appropriate clothing or, I'm not trying to be critical about that. I'm not trying to be critical about the Bill of Rights. I'm a big fan. (laughs) I'm just trying to point out something. As a society, we have always been and are increasingly prickly and sensitive and even today oddly vulnerable and easily wounded, we say, hurt by someone taking from me what I believe is mine and what I should have, what I even think I need to be okay, what I have a right to. And in that context, our passage today in Matthew 5 is out of left field bizarre. 
It would be hard, I think, to find something more counterintuitive or more countercultural to a modern American than this teaching from Jesus here in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. We've been following Jesus as he's moving through this long sermon that we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And importantly, you'll recall, it began with the Beatitudes, telling us what characterizes his followers, his disciples. That's always important. I've gone back to that and touched on that many times. Will again this morning. It's the starting point for everything, but that is particularly important to keep in mind today as we look at this passage. In a lot of ways, it would be helpful if we had just five, six, seven minutes ago read the Beatitudes because they are very much upstream from what we're going to look at today. But as it's, as it's gone, it's been many months since we've looked at poor in spirit, broken, mourning over sin, meek, longing for righteousness, and I'm merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. It's been, it's been a while. So it, it would be helpful though if we could call that back up to mind and remember it. And if we could do so, then this morning's passage almost preaches itself that they're really closely connected. Not quite, though, so we are going to take a little closer look at it, what Jesus has to say about Christians and about our rights, or really, rather, about the yielding of our rights, living here in this counter-cultural, counter-intuitive kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. So we're going to look at it in verses 38 to 42. So let me read it, and I'll draw out two observations, and they are different lengths. So the first one is much longer and the second one is, is pretty short, kind of leading into what we'll talk about next week. But with two observations from this passage, let me read it. This is Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew 5. So two observations. Here's the much longer first one. God's laws about justice teach us to stand for justice but not to demand our own rights. God's laws about justice do indeed teach us to stand for justice but not to demand our own rights. Verse 38 begins with the usual introductory language from this section here in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Here's something that, from God's law that Jesus' followers had heard taught to them, but it was taught in a way that was a little bit off. You have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's referring specifically to Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. And those passages all say exactly something just like this. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So these words actually are in God's law for sure. And a bunch of people today also are quite aware that that's actually in the Bible. That teaching is from the Bible, several places. 
And what's a bit ironic is that many people today who know this have a problem with it, and those who have a problem with it do so because they are misinterpreting it in exactly the same way it was being misinterpreted back in Jesus' day. People have always misread those statements, those passages, as if they were written for personal use and as vindictive. Feeding this personal vengeance, a, a desire to, a need to stand up for yourself and get even. An eye for an eye. Tooth for tooth. But if you read any of those passages, or in fact, any of the other law codes in other nations around that all had similar statutes, what you realize is it's actually the exact opposite. God is speaking to judges and to courts, not to individuals. God gave his law to judges and to courts as helpful, limiting guidance to them. Only a tooth for a tooth is what he means. You can't take this guy into custody, beat him up, and knock out all of his teeth. You can't cut off his head. Only a tooth if you took a tooth. It was limiting. It was, as we might say, making the punishment fit the crime, not exceed it. And it was taught to judges. Jesus, God is teaching it to judges and to courts. It was, though, however, taught a little bit to people. And that's how people heard it and began to think about it. And even when it wasn't taught as individual and personal, people often misunderstood it as being almost a vindictive command. Like, you must be sure that you get a tooth for a tooth. And if you're not going to court, get a bunch of friends and head over to that guy's house and get that tooth. Or if you are doing the right thing and taking it to court, be sure that you press charges and you take it, you take it into the public realm and you post all about it on your social media accounts and you make sure that everybody knows how much of a dirtbag that guy was and that you got him back and put him in his place and got justice. Be sure you do that. That's right. That's righteous, in fact. And Jesus says, that's not what I meant. That's not it at all. That's not the sentiment I was intending to feed because that's not what true citizens of my kingdom are like. The law was given because there's a need in the midst of this fallen world. There is a need to manage sin and disincentivize crime and violence and protect people by means of inflicting a fitting punishment. There's a need for that. Justice must be pursued and stood up for, not just allowed to exist, actively stood for justice in the world. But Christian, we personally, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, individuals, my people are thinking about personal justice and personal rights in a very different way. I say to you, verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. The one who is evil, that is, that's a bad guy. That's not just any old person. He's even talking about bad guys here. Do not resist even him. That's Jesus' first clarifying statement. 
What does that mean? And we're actually going to have to spend a fair bit of time talking about what it doesn't mean. Because right here, immediately, throughout church history, throughout the history of the world, there have been many mistakes made from this passage. There's a lot here. And as I've been writing the sermon this week, I've had a difficult time kind of cramming it all in. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his, his volume on the Sermon on the Mount, preached three sermons on this passage. They're excellent. I highly recommend. Go read them. Go consider them. There's a lot here, in part because there's a lot here that needs to be fixed. People have made mistakes with this over time, largely with regard to some form of pacifism or some form of extreme non-resistance or extreme generosity, giving to anybody and everybody who asks you anything and anything they ask. People have done various things with this passage, and we need to correct those mistakes. And once we do... I think the point that's left becomes pretty obvious. The most important first step in correcting the mistakes and arriving at Jesus' true point here is to remember the context. As is always the case in correctly understanding the Bible, you must remember the context. Invariably, people who have gotten off track in this paragraph have taken one sentence or another and have lifted it up and have treated it as if it is a standalone statement in isolation. This commercial break brought to you by. <laughs> it's like a YouTube stream where it just stops mid-sentence and there's a commercial that it comes back. They've taken something lifted it up and treated it as if it's in isolation. It's not. It's a sentence in a paragraph. One paragraph, Jesus introduced it like he has all the other ones you have heard, but I say he's got one point to make with these sentences. They're all together, they're all one point, and they're all in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. The context is critical here. There's nothing that's in isolation. This Sermon on the Mount, which starts with the Beatitudes, where we get a picture of Christian character, and next leads into the body where we talk about righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. You recall this? The righteousness the Pharisees pursued was what? They tried to figure out exactly what was said and figure out exactly how to do that, and that'll make us righteous. And ironically, many Christians are doing the exact same thing. They pick a statement up and they try to figure out exactly how do I give everything to everybody who asks me. And they approach this Pharisaically. In the context, what's the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees? A righteousness in standing before God and in the heart. This is all about the heart. The heart of anger that lies behind murder. The heart of lust that lies behind adultery. It's all about the heart here too. We should be expecting something that pursues, the, that follows the Beatitudes, that looks for righteousness, particularly righteousness in the heart. And we should also be expecting Jesus to use a teaching technique. He's used a bunch of times already. An extreme statement that's actually ridiculous, but it's making a point. Gouge out your eye if it causes you to lust. He doesn't mean that literally, but he's making a point. Context shapes this whole thing. And we come to this and we say, yeah, he's going to make some extreme statements that are actually kind of ridiculous. If somebody sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak also. In other words, end up standing in court in your underwear. That's ridiculous and sinfully offensive in a Jewish context to expose your body. 
we need to approach this in a different way than has been approached by many people and taught by many people. This single sentence about resisting the evil person and all the ones that follow, they exist in a context. They are not meant to be taken out and literally looked at and literally applied one by one by one. That becomes equally clear when we look at the rest of the Bible and see, you know, actually Jesus resisted evil people. Often. Even in court. When he challenged somebody's right to challenge him. And at other times he was silent like a lamb. Paul resisted evil people all the time, resisted crowds, resisted Roman officials, actually challenged him. Is that right for you to do that to me as a Roman citizen? And at other times he took the beating. There's something more going on than literally taking these sentences and one by one trying to do exactly what they say like a Pharisee. There's something going on, context, about the heart. All of that is to say what's not going on here. And then to reinforce and encourage something that probably we intuit, most of us here probably intuitively know anyway. God gave his laws about justice because we are, in fact, truly, for sure, supposed to stand for justice. And it is okay to fight for that and to pursue it. And it's okay to, to be a police officer or a soldier or a lawyer or a judge and to pursue justice and to protect people. It's okay. In fact, please do. We're going to see in a minute what he does mean about not pursuing an evil one, but let's be clear. He's not teaching some sort of pacifism or non-resistance, and he's not prohibiting Christians from participating as servants in the public in those ways, and he's also not prohibiting us from calling the police when we're bodily attacked, from putting an alarm system on your house, or from locking your car doors. Resist evil. Stand for justice. Protect people, for sure. So what does he mean then? Well, when you clear that away and you look at the whole paragraph together, I think it becomes pretty clear. It means something like this. The principle. I didn't give you the law to shape your heart with a desire to demand your personal rights, to hold on to and to stand upon what's yours and to get even. I'm not looking for a heart like that. In fact, you, Christian, don't even resist the evil person. Extreme statement. Don't resist the evil person. Let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's not a statement about violence. That's about insult and humiliation. If someone jumps you on the street and is beating you up, fight back and call the police. But if he slaps you on the right cheek, that's an insult. That's how adults shame other people. And the only person who would take that is a child or a slave. And you, Christian. The point is obvious. The only people who would take that are children and slaves and every one of us with childlike hearts, servants. 
Take that and turn to him the other also. Don't stand on your right to be treated with respect and dignity. Willingly suffer the humiliation that that bad person means to inflict upon you. Say, like a servant or a child. Okay. Here's the other cheek. Verse 40. Or if he sues you to take your possessions, to take what's yours, same principle. Jesus mentions two items of clothing there. One of them, the tunic, was worn close to the body over the underclothes, and then the cloak, which was an outer garment. And by law, that outer garment could not be taken from you. It was considered necessary for life. Now, in a literal sense, it's hard to imagine that what exactly this sort of, sort of lawsuit would be about. Somebody sues you for your genes. But... It's not meant to be literal. It's just an example of a, of a principle. If he asks you for one thing and, and forces you to give it, give him the rest too, even the thing that you think you can't live without. Or 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. That is referring to one particular distasteful reality that Jews of Jesus' day had to live with. Roman military occupation. The term mile is a Roman distance measurement, not a Jewish one. By Roman law imposed on the Jewish population, a Roman soldier could commandeer a civilian to carry any and everything for a mile by saying, I commandeer you. That's all I need. You, come with me. I have the sword, I'm the soldier, come with me. A Roman military unit moves through a town and they gather up a whole bunch of people, pull them away from their shops, from their fields, from their houses, from their families, and say, you all come with us, carry all this junk, carry it for a mile with us. And I just bet people love that. <laughs> and I also bet that there were a whole bunch of soldiers that proved conveniently really bad at estimating how far a mile was. Take them on for a mile, send them home, pick up another group, but it probably wasn't just a mile. It was just tons of fun being turned into a pack mule suddenly at the drop of a hat. Well, never mind that, this injustice from a foreign power that you hate from the state. Go with him a mile. In fact, carry all of his stuff, double the distance. Go two miles. Happily. And finally, verse 42. Not this time, importantly, not this time dealing with force or with compulsion, but with requesting, even begging. The one who begs from you, give to him. And the one who asks to borrow goods or money, whatever, don't refuse him, don't resist. Be open-handed and generous, even if no one's forcing you to. And this last example really is the one that ties us all together and makes sense of the point because there isn't an evil person here. It's just a beggar on the street or maybe your neighbor asking to borrow your lawnmower. It's just a person, not an evil person. Don't resist an evil person becomes here at the end. Don't refuse the one who would borrow because the point really is not about resisting evil, it's about resisting it's about the very, very natural human instinctive desire to, to hold back the hands of society that come at you and try to grab and take from you what's yours. Mine. 
my honor, my stuff, my dignity and time, my money, that's mine. Keep your hands off of me and off of my stuff. I have the right to dignity. I have the right to my personal possessions. I have the right to, to me and my world. Get your own lawnmower. Get a job and care for yourself. Leave me alone. And the hands come out and grab at you. Some by force, some by just constant nagging. Please, 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 can I have, can I have? And we all want to say instinctively at some point, keep back. Resisting, refusing the ones who would come at us. Do you feel that rising in yourself? In some situation that is something like one of those. These are just examples. But they pretty well cover life. The world reaches out its hands towards you and wants to take from you what's yours, your dignity, your honor, it wants to humiliate you and take. It wants to take from you your stuff. It infringes upon your rights. Now we're going to press into this a little bit more in a moment here, but just ask yourself for a second. Do you feel that rising in you in any particular situation? How quickly you spring to the defense of yourself when that happens. For sure, just said this, we are for sure supposed to resist evil and stand for righteousness and justice for the principles of what is good. And that right there, there's, there's a whole lot more that can be said about that, but just to answer a little question that might be hanging in our minds, that right there is a key thing to understand if you're trying to figure out why did Paul sometimes stand on his rights as a citizen and sometimes not mention them? And how, how should I sometimes, but sometimes not? For the principle of what is good, a way of loving the world for the sake of others. You know, we even see this sometimes in our society. You know, there are some things where if something happens to you, you can make a decision about whether or not you press charges. And some things you don't have the decision to make. The state presses charges. Because the state recognizes there's a general good here that surpasses you. That kind of thinking is, is the line here of where is there something that surpasses just me and my rights and my good and gets us into the spot where this is good for people that that guy get arrested. I might let it go, but I probably shouldn't for the sake of everybody else. There's more to be said about that, but think down that path. That kind of helps sort out how we stand for evil and how at other times we turn the other cheek. It's a way of loving the world for the sake of others. But personally, when it's about my own sake and my own view, personally meek and merciful towards the people all around us, even when they insult us, take from us. To turn the other cheek and be meek, gracious and peacemaking. That's his call for us here. And if you're a Christian, you do want that in part. Because something of that has been placed in you when God saved you. It's the work he's done and the work he is doing in you, but I tell you that, that if you sit in front of this, 
and just pay attention to yourself for a couple days, like I have had opportunity to do this week, really disappointing. How much of the world is still in me? How much of the instinctive flesh rises up at that imposition on my time, that slight insult, that assumption about me, that attempt to take from me, just stuff just, it's disappointing. He's got more work to do in all of us. Dying to self doesn't come easy to us still. And so the first and most important thing for us to, to sit in is that's, that's the call on me. And as I look at that and see how far short I and you fall, then it is good news that there is one who didn't fall short. This is... This is the regular foundation upon which we can stand. And we have to keep coming back to this. There is one who came to die to self perfectly, turned his cheek to the scoffers, and suffered willingly, quietly, the humiliation of evil men. And after a gigantic miscarriage of justice, clothes were taken from him and everything he was is taken from him and he was forced to walk the road carrying his cross up to where he then gave his life, gave his death for those of us who apart from him would be doomed. One did that perfectly. And that's how God's Justice is finally ratified and finally undergirded with the reality that says, one day justice will be completely, finally, fully done. Look there, I showed you, I'm committed to that. He gave a life for a life. Justice was done in a way that did not leave you doomed. Christian, that's good news. It was God in all of God's glory and he did not count that right as something to stand on but he laid it down and died to himself and gave himself for you. That's how you're made righteous in God's eyes and that then is the model that he sets in front of us and says now righteous in my eyes with me one of my, one of my children one of my friends a citizen of my kingdom righteous now walk with me into that life of righteousness. Because like, like always, like with every one of these sections here in the sermon, we cannot just say, that's the call, I fail, thank God for forgiveness. But we have to move on and say, and thank God for empowering me to walk that out increasingly so. So this is what takes us to the second point, which is much shorter than the first. And really is almost kind of a bridge into next week's passage because they are very closely connected. But here's a second observation. Dying to self daily and giving yourself away meekly, that's Christ's call for us. Dying to self daily, giving yourself away meekly. 
That's Christ's call for us. So we're going to get at that by, by continuing kind of right in the same vein where we just were thinking about what we were just thinking about. I'm going to throw out a few examples. That what I want you to do here is, yes, listen to me, but also play with these things in your mind. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk, I hope, slowly about this because I want you to think this through and I'm going to be doing something here that will be obvious. I'm going to do something because it's what you have to do daily. So maybe these examples work for you. Maybe you've got to take and replace them with something else. But, but whatever you do, engage with this, thinking about it in your mind, you about you, where the world reaches out its hands and tries to take from you. So I'm going to give a few examples here. The boss shames you at work. Or the coach does in front of the whole team. Or the teacher doesn't hand the paper back folded over neatly with the F written on it, but puts it right on your desk and so-and-so sees and now the class knows that you're an idiot. What happens in you? That boils up, or something like that for you. What happens when that boils up in you and you want to unload on that person? Or you do later to others as you gossip and tear them apart. Or maybe you don't say anything about it. But what's not happening is meekness. It's a mix of rage, indignation, and a desire to swing back with a fist. Or maybe you've experienced a miscarriage of justice. Maybe it was a lawsuit that you lost or an insurance claim that was denied and it shouldn't have been. Insurance companies, they exist to not give you the money that's yours. Right? Dirty thieves, right? Or maybe there's a time off request that you put in, in plenty of time and it should have been yours, but again, you're working Christmas. I mean, again, every, every year. Somewhere in society where you are, where you are under some sort of a, of a judgment from some, some people and it goes against you again. What happens there? Or maybe... The government just required you to wear a mask in a building. That's mostly in the past now. Not completely. But what if it came back? How did that go in your heart? They don't have any right to require that. And it's not even medically necessary. It's, that's a whole, it's a whole fake thing. That's the point right there. Something other than meek got fired up in you when they, when they said, you must, if you want to come into Home Depot, put on a mask. And still even today, if you want to come into some hospitals, something gets fired up in us about that. Some of us. Others of us are fired up about the people who are fired up. <laughs> Either way, it's not meek. Right? 
This is unjust. It is improper. I should be respected and treated well. I deserve better. I have rights. Give me what's mine. Keep your hands off. Don't tread on me. That flag has come back, has it not? But I say to you, poor in spirit one, here's what I'm doing to you, what you have to do to yourself. So, see this coming here. I say to you, poor in spirit one, naked you came into the world and naked you depart and you brought nothing in your hands. You don't have any rights. You draw every breath by mercy. You live here on a planet of which millions could fit into the sun and there are billions of stars in the galaxy and trillions of galaxies and I made it all. Who are you? And he says that to you, see this clearly, he says that to you wearing a crown of thorns, not carrying a hammer. Okay? But who are you? Poor in spirit. And if you see, I got to get off the high horse here. Does that not lead you to mourn over the fact that you so quickly remount? Something should break in us if and as, in this case, I hope, as I bring you in front of this one, that's what you have to do with yourself, to bring yourself in front of that one, not these ones, that one. And as something breaks in us, then what should come out is, because it's planted in you, it should resonate. Something should come out of that as a meekness, that is, a, that is an emptying and a desire to use what I have, what I've been given. I don't earn any of this. I don't deserve any of this. It's not mine. It's loaned. It's a gift to use what you have in the blessing of others meekly. It's a servant to them, humble. Now, obviously, you see what I just did there, right? I took this, this call, this challenge to the that rises up in me, I took that and I dragged it right back to the beginning of chapter 5, to the beginning of the Beatitudes, which is the beginning of this, of this Sermon on the Mount. That's what you have to do too. Dying to self daily, putting self to death daily, sounds very Christian. And probably some... Some probably saw that written in the, maybe the, the E-Link, saw that as a sermon title and kind of thought they knew what it meant. You heard me say it, you thought you knew what it meant. Because it's familiar to us. It's very Christian. Die to self. Put yourself to death. We know verses about it. Take up your cross daily and follow me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We, we know verses about that. We know that. We have to do it. Put yourself to death daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. To know that is one thing, to do it is another. And the way we do it is not by just citing the verse. The way you do it is by going back to beatitude number one and saying, I live in the middle of a postage stamp. Who am I? If you weren't here for that sermon, that 
just a reference to the living on the surface of the earth in the middle of a vast universe underneath of a God who is that one. Who am I? You've got to take yourself back to there, put yourself to death and realize I have no rights to stand on. Praying those beatitudes home. Spirit of God, press those things into me. Make them real. Make them alive in me. Bring my mind back away from the indignation that that moron, no, that idiot, no, that person just did to me. Take my mind away from that and put me in front of that one. Not that one. Spirit of God, move my heart. And then, the Beatitudes continue, and then, Lord, move me out from here towards the world. Remember the last of the Beatitudes? Merciful towards the world. Pure in heart towards the world. Peacemaking towards the world, even if it persecutes me. That's exactly what this section is about. People who persecute us, and we respond to them meekly. It almost preaches itself. That's what we have to do for ourselves, to take ourselves back to the spot, to put self to death, not just to know that I should be, to actually do it. And then I find that these statements here, as you've thought them through for yourself, they provide great categories, if you will, in which I might find room to give myself away, meekly person who humiliates me or doesn't think much of me, treats me that way. The right I've lost, the government that does stuff to me, the people who just ask and ask and ask and ask and never run out of needs. They're grasping at you. Some of those hands should be filled. Some of them should not be. Wisely and meekly, we think through yes and no, and we think about the needs of the whole society, the whole of the world, but what we're thinking about is What's good for others? What's within my capabilities? Not what's good for me. Dying to self, giving myself away meekly. And that will raise eyebrows. And lead some people to ask, how do you do that? Because that's not natural turn the other cheek. People come back with a fist if they're not a slave or a child. And you're not either. How did you respond like that? Why? What is the reason for the hope that is within you? What do the Beatitudes tell you? What's the answer to that question? What is the reason for the hope that is within you? Well, the reason is I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm no better than that guy, than those ones. I'm nothing. But Jesus, who is God, became nothing for me and forgave my sin on the cross and made me then a citizen of heaven and forgave me and made me an heir of the earth and everything in it and everything that is on earth and everything that is in heaven is mine. And I right now walk through these days in fellowship with him, seeing his face, an object of mercy, 
That's the reason for the hope that's within me. People will ask when this passage happens. They won't ask when it doesn't because everybody knows it's easy to be hopeful when everything's going great. This is important for our own development, for the glory of God, for witness to the world. It's important. Death to self, giving away of self, while standing on, I am a citizen of heaven. That's my reality. That's what I stand on. Not my will, but his be done. A life of open-handed surrender. That's a heart like Christ's. That's righteousness. It's what he calls us to and is empowering us to. Now, if you look ahead, just glance ahead, the section over your next heading might say, love your enemies. There's more to say about how you love your enemies, and we'll talk a little more about that next week. That's where we leave it today, though. Denying self, giving yourself away, involves you taking yourself back to the Beatitudes and living out of them, banking your hope on, standing on their promises. That's the Christian life. Let me pray. Lord, would you help us to do that? More than just to know it, would you help us to do it? To help me to do it. Would you help us to take ourselves back to your your leveling realities of who we are and what we're for, what you are for us in Christ. Give us help by your spirit to do that and build a church that is sweet. Build individual Christians that are sweet because of this. Thank you, Lord, for your your kindness, for your commitment to us. Build your people and honor your name here. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.